Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Tonight we're going to be uh, back in the book of Job, so please open up your Bibles to Job chapter 19. Please open your Bibles to Job chapter 19. So, for the past several months, we've been sort of traveling this, I call it a grief journey with Job. We've been his companion along the way, and we've seen how he's um, just dealt with this pain and suffering and grief and mourning that's come into his life. And we've, we've observed certain things that um, are probably good for us to kind of apply to our own lives. And we've also observed uh, many things that we probably would rather not make application to our situation. We've also seen um, his friends come alongside him and lift him up in, uh, in prayer and, um, and just accompany him in his grief. And then we've kind of seen those relationships breaking down over the course of these several chapters um, as um, his friends interject their opinions and their thoughts about what's going on in Job's life and, and why he's suffering the way he is. But this grief journey that we're with Job um, in, in this book, um, it's not much different than any grief journey that we see um, amongst people that we know or that we've been through ourselves. Uh, when we have a, a, a great loss, there's, um, there's this, these stages that we go through, right? There's these phases of grief and mourning that we go through. We know that, that, that it's, it's a process, right? Not, that nothing gets resolved immediately and that there are certain things that we need to go through. Um, and bringing it into today's world and, and to personalize it with ourselves and our own situations or our friends or family members who we know have been through this. We know that some people go through these stages quicker than others, and some people go back and forth between them, and, um, and we know that there's no formula for that. Uh, but for for us, if if it is somebody that we know, somebody that's in our life that we have opportunity to come alongside, we want to be part of that with them. And uh, so I'm going to kind of give us an, an overview tonight of what this grief process looks like, because I think it's important that we see how it applies to our lives today and how different uh, aspects of society or different um, parts of our culture try to deal with this thing called grief. There's a, if you want to put that up to Lenny, um, so there's a secular model for grieving, right? And that's uh, something that most 
I guess secular psychologists or psychiatrists would use, and that's the Kubler-Ross model for the grieving process. It's, it's five stages of grieving, and, and um, she breaks it down into denial, which is that shock reaction, right? This can't be true. No, not me. We refuse to believe what happened. And we, we know that we've maybe experienced that at the beginning when something happens in our life that, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to believe that it's actually happening. So there's that denial stage. And then, there's, then maybe we go move on into this anger stage, this resentment stage. Why me? Uh, why my child? This isn't fair. We, we blame uh, God. We blame others. Uh, sometimes we might even blame ourselves. And we notice that in this stage, a lot of times we're agitated or moody or uh, we're on edge. And so we've maybe experienced that or seen people go through that also. Then then we see this bargaining stage, this kind of way of um, trying to making a deal, um, insisting that uh, things be the way they used to be. Sometimes we try to make a deal with God, like, God, if you, if you healed my child, then I'll never drink again, or something like that. We call a temporary truce with God, thinking that maybe we've done something to cause this calamity in our life. And um, if, we, if we just are able to bargain with God, then he'll, he'll remove that from us. And uh, then there's the depression stage, and, and maybe we've experienced that or seen people experience that. And this is when we kind of get to the point where he said, we say, yes, me. We have the courage to admit our loss brings sadness, um, which, and a, and a loss, a great loss in our life, can bring sadness, should bring sadness. We should be sad when someone we know or love passes away and they're no longer with us, and that's, that's kind of normal. But then it could move to hopelessness, and this is unhealthy mourning or grieving. And then, and then according to this secular model, they, um, the last stage is acceptance. We face our loss uh, calmly. It's time to kind of reflect and regroup and we get to a point where we might say, well, okay, life has to go on. We don't know exactly how that's going to happen. Um, and then we look for ways to, to move into the, like to move forward with our lives, right? So we have those five stages that we see used a lot in, secular, uh, in the, the secular world, secular psychology or or psychiatry, but there are limitations to this process because it really, even though it it, it mentions God or um, spirituality uh, throughout those stages, it omits God and His Word from the grieving process. It doesn't bring Him in to help come alongside the one who's grieving. Uh, Dr. Bob Kellerman, a well-respected Christian biblical counselor, writes about the biblical grief process extensively. And in his writings, he describes a biblical model for grieving, which involves a much more individualized and complete process. He breaks the grieving process down into two responses, 
sustaining and healing. And then within those responses, he describes eight biblical stages of grief. And I just will just go through the eight stages. So stage one is denial. That's the typical grief response, the denial or isolation stage. But the, then the biblical response would be candor. Uh, am I being honest with myself um, about th- this, this loss? Um, wh- how, how can I search inside myself and my relationship with the Lord to see exactly what's going on here? Stage two, again, we see the anger or resentment in the, in the world's way of looking at this. But the biblical response would be our complaint. We're honest with God. First, we're honest with ourselves, and then we may complain to God. We may wonder why, but there's that, there's that relationship, there's that give and take, there's that seeking God to uh, get us through. And then stage three, where we see the bargaining um, in the secular model, we see more in the biblical model the asking God for help, the crying out to the Lord, not necessarily saying, if you do this, then I'll do this, God, but just seeking God for help, just falling uh, on our knees before him and admitting that we can't do it on our own. And then stage four, we see in the, in the secular model, the depression and alienate, alienization that we see a lot of people go through that, that stage. But then in the biblical response, we see receiving God's help. Okay, God, I'm, I know that I need you. And I reached out to you, Lord. I'm seeking you. I'm asking you to help me get through this. And now I'm going to receive that help that you're giving me, that comfort that you're giving me, Lord, so that I can get through this. And so that's kind of the sustaining part of the biblical response. But then the healing part takes you even further, which is really what I, I like about the fact that we can go to the Lord and we can expand on what the world does. Uh, and, and God does it so much better. Because in the healing stage, um, we have hope. We have hope. It's possible to hope and grow in our relationship with the Lord, even through or in the midst of suffering. So in, in the, in, again, in the secular model, we see the regrouping stage. The biblical stage that corresponds to that would be waiting, trusting with faith, waiting on the Lord, trusting that even though we may not completely understand what's going on, we trust that he's got the best for us. And then in the secular model, we see that deadening stage, the kind of just... Uh, just not being able to move one way or another. We see in the biblical response groaning with hope. In other words, just going to the Lord and saying, Lord, I I just, I I don't know what to say, but I'm going to put my trust and hope in you because I believe that you have the best for me. And then in stage seven, which is that despairing or doubting in in the secular model, we see kind of being woven back together by God, really having a sense of the grace and the mercy that he wants to bestow on us through the time of suffering that we're going through. 
And then stage eight, sort of digging cisterns, just just digging our feet in and um, the secular model where we're just, you know, kind of stubborn and not moving anywhere. But in the biblical response, we see worshiping. We see engaging the Lord and receiving the love that we sense through that relationship with him. So the reason why I wanted to bring that up is because I wanted to kind of have something to go to as we see Job go through all of these stages. Now, we've seen him go through many of them already. And this book, um, this, the record of Job's suffering and his response to that suffering, and then God's response to him is really uh, important to us as we deal with things in our life. See, we can identify maybe with those things that Job goes through um, or we can help others as they're dealing with uh, pain and loss, suffering and grief in their life. And uh, life is messy sometimes. And uh, we need to be able to kind of sift through all of that stuff in order to um, respond in a biblical way. And God will help us do that. So in ch- remember the last time we were in chapter 18 and we heard from Bildad, uh, Job's friend, and he, we just saw the very poor counsel that he gave Job and a picture for us, a lesson for us, how not to comfort a friend, how not to counsel a friend that's hurting or grieving. Chapter 19 is Job's response. And it begins with a familiar complaint that we hear from Job and we've heard from him in the past. We'll hear from him again. And so in verses 1 through 6, it says, Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have reproached me. You are not ashamed that you have wronged me. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me. So Job here is responding to Bildad and, again, the accusations that, the, that these friends of his continue to, to uh, level against Job. And he's complaining, as he's done in the past, that Bildad is doing more harm than good. It's just his words are hurting rather than healing. They're adding heaviness and weight to his burdens. And Job tells Bildad in verse 4 that even if I have sinned, it's between, that's between me and the Lord. We'll work it out. I don't need you to add more burden and weight onto what I'm already going through. And for us, we, we, we want to be able to go to the Lord and seek him and ask him to show us where we've gone wrong, show us where we've maybe gone off track, if that's the case. And then work it out between us and the Lord and um, allow God to then minister to our hearts. But certainly when we're suffering, we don't need people to um, put a heavier burden on us in those, at those times. So Job is going to answer Bildad. Remember the last time he gave, gave Job all these illustrations of what happens to the wicked man when he dies and And so Job is going to kind of respond to some of those illustrations with some of his own. So Job, in verses 6 through 12, it says, Know then that God has wronged me, 
and has surrounded me with his net. If I cry out concerning wrong, am I, not, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me and counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. So it was bad enough that Job felt trapped by God. He didn't need his friends to kind of throw fuel on the fire. And Bildad here uses various word, used various words, remember, in, in chapter 18 to kind of des- to describe the predicament that Job found himself in. Remember, he used snare or trap or net that kind of all describe an animal being caught in a trap. And this was Bildad's illustration to Job and kind of telling Job, Job, this is what happens when a wicked man is caught um, sinning. This is, this is what happens. Eventually, he's going to die, and all of these things are going to happen. He's going to get caught, and he's going to get trapped. And, Job, you should just get used to it, because this is, this is, this is your lot in life because of, of what you've done. But Job continued to insist that he didn't fit into that category. He felt more like God had wronged him, not that he was taking out rightful vengeance or wrath against Job for sinning, but he feels like he was an innocent party. He was a righteous man who was being punished like a wicked man. And verse 7 here speaks about that, speaks of an innocent man being charged with a crime he didn't commit. He says, if I cry out concerning wrong, I'm not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. Where is the justice, God? And so Job is saying, um, in response to Bildad and to God, I'm an innocent man here, but I feel like I'm being charged with crimes I haven't committed. He's pleading for an opportunity to defend himself. Instead, he continued to have these allegations um, thrown at him by his friends. Verses 8 through 12 tells us um, that Job kind of feels fenced in. He feels trapped. It says, He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass, set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me, counts me as one of his enemies, his troops come together and build their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. So you can sense his feeling there that he's trapped. Now, he, he says he's fenced in. He cannot pass. There's darkness in his past. It's like a, it's like a big traffic jam. Jo- Job is looking for a way out, and he can't find a way out. Now, if any, there's anything that I really don't like, and that's just being stuck in traffic. It's happened to me numerous times traveling into New York. It seems like no matter when when we go, uh, they're doing construction on one of the roads. And there's, going into Long Island, there's really no alternative route. You have to you have to take certain roads and 
then you're stuck. And that's not something that I really enjoy at all. It's frustrating, and you're just sitting there. Your road is blocked. There's no other way to get around. And I think that's kind of the way Job felt, you know, to put it to put it into modern terms, he felt like he was, in a, he was in a traffic jam and there was just no way out. But I want you to remember what, um, what Satan said back in chapter 1 of this book about God fencing Job in. You know, Job kind of felt like he was trapped, right? He felt like he had no way out. But look, remember in verse uh, 10 of chapter 1, going all the way back to the beginning of the book, Satan says to God, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Satan's saying, uh, God, you've kind of put a fence around Job. You've, You've hedged him in on every side. And Job didn't understand that that was actually a blessing in his life. That was God's way of kind of limiting what Satan could do to afflict Job because God had protected him. Job now kind of looks at this protection as a limitation on his life, something where he feels trapped and he wasn't really seeing God from the proper perspective. You know, when we, we may pray about something and uh, sense that God is closing, maybe closing a particular door in our life for one reason or another. And we may have this view that God is res- kind of restricting us from doing something, from, from moving into some area of our life or a position in our job or whatever it might be. Um, and he's holding us back. And yet, we may not realize that he's actually protecting us from something that we can't see that might be harmful to us. So, you know, there's always more than one way of looking at how God interacts in our life. And Job here forgot that God's hedge around him was for protection not to limit uh, what, he, what he could do. Many times God will allow darkness in our lives and there's nowhere else to turn except we should turn to him. And that's what he's looking for. He's looking for that relationship. He's looking for us to kind of get to the point where we say, well, there is no other place to go. So I'm going to go to you, you, God. He would prefer that we did that right off the bat, but sometimes we're stubborn, right? We, we have to try to go our own way. We have to try to figure out another path. Um, and we try to go around God's plan. And yet he wants us to follow what he wants for our lives. Um, in Isaiah 50, uh, verse 10, it says, Who among you fears the Lord? who obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness has, and has no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. And then that's what we should be doing when darkness comes in and we can't find a way out. Just lean on the Lord, 
fall on God and allow him to lead and guide us. The following verses here, 13 through 20, kind of speak of Job's isolation. Um, this, this stage in his grief where he's kind of pulling back from, from people. And he kind of knows um, that there's something wrong with that. You can tell by, by what he's saying in these verses. Job understood how important relationships were. That's probably why he was so upset at his friends and how they you know, were, were attempting to comfort him but were really doing a very poor job of it. He knew that relationships were important. He knew that it's the people that come alongside of us that many times will help us get through the very dark parts, parts of our life. And... The thing with Job is he had this physical uh, affliction that was um, really uh, uh, painful and uh, debilitating. And he also had this emotional pain and grief. And you combine those two things together, and Job kind of started to withdraw from people. And maybe we've done that. Maybe there's been, maybe there's a physical thing that came up in our life that we're not sure how to deal with it, and we've kind of, kind of withdrawn from people. Maybe there's a loss in our life that we're not sure how to how to deal with, and we've kind of pulled back, isolated ourselves from um, from our brothers and sisters in the church, but. For me, that's, that's the time that the body of Christ really can come around you and kind of minister to what you're going through, to, the, to your need at that time. That's the, that's the worst time to isolate is when you're going through something difficult. But um, Job senses that, and, and he also senses that somehow God um, has a hand in this. Um, and he's not exactly sure how that is, but um, as we go through these verses, it kind of it opens up to us, and we get a, a better idea as to why Job thinks that. So in verses 13 through 20, he writes, He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise, and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me. And those whom I have turned, who, whom I love, have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. So this is kind of a sad picture of Job's isolation and his sense of loneliness as he's going through the most difficult time in his life. And it wasn't only that he was withdrawing, but it was also that others were withdrawing from him. 
He was feeling shunned. He was feeling isolated by everyone that would have called him a friend in the past. Even family have completely turned their back on Job. Now, we have to understand in thinking about what he's going through. His, his physical appearance was probably repulsive to people. Whatever was happening with his, with his uh, physical condition, he was probably difficult to look at, actually, uh, when he was going through this. And people were also under this impression that, you know, Job had, must have sinned greatly and he was deserving of God's judgment. So they kind of pulled away from him and they treated him like an out, outcast. You know, they didn't want to be around Job. Job, look what you're going through. You, you know, why, why would we want to be dragged down with you into this mire that you find yourself in? And so they kind of pulled away, you know, and indirectly he's blaming God for that. He's saying, God, look, look, what's, look what you've done. You've, you've removed my friends. You've removed my family. You've removed my, the people in my life that I need the most right now. And so you can, you can sense that. You can sense what's going on in his life. People pulled away from him. They treated him like an outcast. But think about it. Think about our Lord Jesus. Wasn't it the outcast of society that Jesus identified with, came to, went to? Wasn't it the rejected ones who received the greatest attention of our Lord? Matthew 9 tells of this. In verses 9 through 13, and it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Seems like tax collectors were more hated back then than they, than they even are now. And when the Pharisees saw it, verse 11, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus went to the outcast of society. Jesus went to the ones who were rejected by others, the hated amongst the people at that time, because he knew that they, they needed him. They needed him. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, tells us of this other time that Jesus just goes to the ones that society cast aside. It says in verse 1, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, 
and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. He reached out. He touched that leper, the one that was the outcast of society that people would talk about a six-foot distancing, social distancing. They had it back then. You could not be within uh, probably 10 feet of a leper they would, they, they would yell it out in the streets that there was a leper so that people would get away. That's how outcast this group was. And yet Jesus went to him, touched him, and cleansed him. You know, it's really no different than him reaching out to us, is it? Extending the hand of grace, the hand of mercy. You know, sometimes we think we need to clean up our act before Jesus will come to us. But that's not what he does. He comes to us in the midst of our ugliness, in the midst of uh, the, the things that society looks down on. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, that in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we cleaned up our act, not when we started going to church, not when we became holy. No, while we were still sinners, he died for us. And then he draws us to himself. He reaches out with his hand of healing and love and grace and mercy. And we may be outcast of society, but we're the ones that Jesus reaches out to. In these last few verses, as we start to bring it to a close, we see now Job appealing to his friends for, for mercy. You know, he felt like God was against him. All his acquaintances have deserted him. And it, it, maybe at least these three friends of his would would come alongside of him, but... Um, and he's, so he's pleading for that. He says in verses 21 and 22, Have pity on me. Have pity on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? Are you not satisfied with my flesh? So this is his kind of a desperate appeal to them for some compassion. Even if God refused to show him mercy, at least... At least Job is saying, at least you, my friends, you'll show me mercy. You'll, you'll be kind to me. You'll be compassionate to me. See, at this point, Job has yet to really hear from God. We haven't gotten to that portion of this book where Job and God, and God kind of go back and forth a little bit. So he's dealing here with his friends. He's asking his friends to kind of turn their hearts toward him. Have some compassion. And then there's a pivot that happens in, this, in, in these last few verses. And I love, I love this because this kind of gives us a little bit of an uplifting uh, ending to this chapter. And I've mentioned it before in going through the Psalms that sometimes we see this pivot that David takes you know, in complaining against the Lord or, or saying that, you know, the, the wicked are, are uh, you know, being uh, lifted up and, and the, the righteous are being torn down. And 
And, and then yet, and at the end of the Psalms, many of the Psalms, there's this kind of pivot that takes place. Well, Job does the same thing here. Now he's, he proclaims his faith in God. I think he's gotten to a point where he realizes that, you know, his friends aren't going to back him up. His, his family is going to shun him. Uh, society is going to turn their back on him. Uh, God, you're the only one. You're the only one. And so he writes these words and he, and he asks that, uh, that God hears him and that the record of what he's going through is kept so that people can look back on it. I think he was basically saying there's going to be people who can learn from what I go through. So in verses 23 through 21, 29, uh, it says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Well, they are. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you should say, how shall we persecute him? Since the root of the matter is found in me, be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Job must have somehow realized that his suffering would have a greater purpose, would have a purpose in the lives of millions or billions of people throughout the ages that people who read the record of what he went through would be able to help people forever. And he must have had some inkling of that. You know, Bildad told Job in chapter 18 that the memory of Job would perish forever when he eventually died. But Job knew that his suffering wasn't in vain. He had this this idea that there was a there was a greater purpose and he wanted to be sure that people would know how he suffered what he went through and how god was there even in the midst of that and that there was a reason for this suffering that he's going through this declaration of faith kind of interrupts the grief and the pain and the complaining that we hear from job and it's a, it's a welcome interruption in, in this chapter and, and in the book. It's, we're, kinda, we're almost halfway through the book now. So we see now Job turning, pivoting, and knowing that God's going to get him through. Um, this is normal. This is kind of normal for anyone who's grieving. We see these, these pivots. We see the grieving process take place, and we see you know, all the different stages. Um, But it's never quite in a neat package. We see people going back and forth. Um, I mentioned Dr. Kellerman before. He writes on this topic a lot. He, He writes regarding this and just kind of putting it in line with the pivot that Job is taking. He writes, um, Dr. Kellerman writes, grieving and growing is messy because life is messy. 
Moving through hurt to hope is a two steps forward, one step backwards endeavor. We don't conquer a stage and then never return to it. Rather than picturing a linear step-by-step route, imagine a three-dimensional maze with many possible paths, frequent detours, backtracking, and even the ability to reside in more than one stage at the same time. However positive movement is possible, in fact, it is promised, you can find God's healing for your losses and you can find hope for your hurt. And so I think that's what Job is finally realizing here in these verses. He says, I know my Redeemer lives in verses 25 uh, through 27, and he shall stand on the, at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know. This is Job expressing just confidence and assurance that when he died, he would have a Redeemer who would would redeem him, who would draw him to himself. Whatever that looks like, whatever the afterlife looks like in Job's mind, he knew that God would take care of him. And, of course, he was pointing to our kinsman, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And he expressed that trust in God for that. And this was by faith. This was a confident faith that Job had. And we see that in the Apostle Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians 4.14. He says, Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. And Proverbs 23.10 and 11 says, um, as, you know, just drawing us into everlasting life, he says, Don't remove the ancient landmark nor enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is mighty, and he will plead their cause against you. That advocate that we have, that advocate that we have in Jesus Christ. And Job kind of welcomed this judgment that he knew was going to happen because he knew of his innocence. He believed in his innocence, and he believed in a righteous God, in a righteous God. As believers, we don't stand before God in the same way that unbelievers do. We don't face that same judgment because as believers, we've received Christ. We've, we've, we've received his righteousness for our sin and his payment on the cross, we believe, is sufficient for that. But we will stand before the Lord for the things we've done in this life, whether it brought him glory or not. We have to always remember that. We stand confident, though, before God that if we've accepted Christ's sacrifice as payment for our sins, that we'll be with him in eternity. So we know that we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us because of what Jesus had done when we put our faith and trust in him. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. 
We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.